0: Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker.
1: Charlie Elliott was a missionary who gave his life up trying to reach people with the gospel. And he made a statement before he died. He said, you are no fool who give up what you cannot hold on to, to take hold of what you cannot lose. And he was talking about Jesus. Would you just bow your heads? Would you let us continue to worship him? And let's just pray to him right now. Jesus, every day we're assaulted with images and with advertising that asks us to reach on to something that will not satisfy, something that moth or thieve or rust can destroy. But you offer us something infinitely greater. You offer us yourself. And we're no fools who give up the temporary pleasures of right now to grab a hold of eternity as we hold on to you. So Jesus, would you just take our words, mine, Pastor Chris's, Pastor Troy's, over the next few moments, and would you guide our conversation? I pray this in your name. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. We are three weeks in. To what's going to become a four-week series, meaning we've got one more week to go. And I want to give you the chance to go ahead and to ask a question live. So right there in your house, Or in this room, go ahead and pull out your phone. You can open up to YouTube, to Facebook, or to our live channel. And if you hear something from us today and you want more information or there's something that's on your heart that you want to know about, why don't you go ahead and send that question in? Now, that doesn't mean that you can play Candy Crush during the sermon. I'm just saying, if you got a question and you want to ask it, you can do it live right now today. Because as a church, we believe, I'll put it right up there for you on the screen, every honest question deserves an honest answer. We described what an honest question was last week. I'm not going to try to insult you, but I do want to say a lot of questions came in online. They came in before we even started this sermon series, and what we're going to try to do, the three of us today, is answer some of those questions that came in before we even started this three weeks ago But if you've got a question and you want some more information, feel free to send it in YouTube, Facebook, or in the the chat in our live channel, and one of the three of us will answer or try to give our best answer to your question. Somebody played Stump the Pastor last week, James, and I think we've got an answer for you this week because we had to go do a little bit of research on this one. But I'm going to sit down and I'm going to pass it off to Pastor Chris first. We've got a a question that's on the screens. And I think this is what the question is trying to ask. But Pastor Chris, I'll put on the screens what I think the question is asking. But somebody who who, uh, submitted a question online earlier, I think they're asking, how do I know which faith? Because there's lots of different faith systems out there. How do I know which one is true? But here's the exact question so that everybody in the room can hear what was submitted online. Every church, every religion has a quote truth. And if you don't believe their quote truth, at the end, something bad's gonna happen to you. How do you know that this Christian thing is quote true and not the other religions? Very honest question, deserves an honest answer. Go for it. Great, I'm glad that I get all the easy questions every week. Yeah, you got week. five minutes to answer all of world religions in all of human history. Go.
2: Because God.
1: All Tells right, next question.
2: Great, no, just kidding. Um, that does apply, but let's look at a few things. One of the things that is obviously important to us as Christians is the scripture. And we know that God gave us scripture. And that scripture is good for teaching, it is good for rebuking, it is good for learning, so on and so forth, that we are reminded so many times. But one of the things that's really important about the Word and what we have been given is the fact that God told us exactly what this relationship looks like, what our faith actually looks like. But one of the most impressive parts is if we look at all the world religions, all of them side by side, almost every single one of those talks about a God that is separate from its creation and does not seek to be part of it, but rather applies a bunch of rules and other things that those beings then have to do to attempt to become good enough to maybe possibly, if you're really lucky, actually get to spend eternity with said deity at the end of that course. And our God is very different, because there's a few things that occurred. That we could go first to John 1.14, we see that the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That right off the bat, the Word not only was provided to us so that we can understand the true character of God, but we know that Jesus is the Word, and other than being the Creator, also chose to be with us on this journey. We've talked about this a few times over the last few weeks. Of Our faith is a personal faith. It's not a separated one, and... One of the things we can look at here is, uh, Ravi Zacharias used to say, most other religions talk about climbing that mountain. So you might have the opportunity to become close to your deity, but never get there. But our God started on the mountaintop and descended to be with his creation. That's good. And there are no other faiths like ours. It's not like there's one or two that are similar but different. There are no other world religions where God sought to actually be with his creation. And that's a big piece to why this yeah. ends up being true at the end of the day. I'll get to the nuts and bolts of this because I'm an apologist and I absolutely love the <laughs> we, other stuff. We but couldn't tell that about you over the last not, couple of weeks. It doesn't show at all. But the other thing is we just know that the other thing is part of that personal relationship means that he's the only way. Mm-hmm. So you hear a lot that Christianity is exclusive. Well, this is one of those places we see this in in John fourteen six. We see that Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, we see a reminder of what and who God is, is the way, truth, and life. Literally all of our being in existence. But there's no other way. You can't work your way in. You can't be good enough. You can't do all these wonderful things to show up. You're not reconciling to God. That's what Jesus is for. And that's why the gospel is so unique and different. So... That's part of the uniqueness, but it also applies to why it is true. And one of my favorite sayings that one of my first pastors ever used to say is this, and that is, the more we dig out of the ground, the more we realize that the truth of scriptures is accurate. If you've ever heard the, oh, well, none of this stuff in the historical Bible is true, no one can prove that, you have been lied to. The amount of actual archaeological evidence of instances throughout the historical Bible in terms of places, incidents, all the way down to fountains, like the fountain at Bethesda and things like that. We have found these things. We have dated these things with science yeah. and said, that happened. It was there when the Bible told us it was there. So if we have this preponderance of evidence of stuff, physical stuff, the faith part's easy by comparison. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar, you can go back and look at Lee Strobel and Case for Christ and an example of a journalist that literally went from, okay, I'm going to go. Do it. Disprove Christianity. Right. I'm going to go find all these evidences that I've been told exist, and he found out by doing the work that they don't exist. The evidence actually does support the existence. And we could go on and on, but another thing that's really helpful for me is true, is how many copies of the other text, of other beings, religions, et cetera, do we have in comparison to Christianity? This is another lie you will hear a lot, because you'll hear not much. We don't have a lot of documentation of the Bible out of all the books in antiquity that we read in a scholarly sense or in a religious sense, the Bible is the most well-documented, least variated document of history ever. There's over 5,000 unique scripts of the New Testament alone and the variation between them is so minimal. Do you know how many copies of Homer's the Iliad there are in existence that we use to say, yup, that's exactly what Homer wanted us to understand of the Iliad? Any guesses?
1: 11. That's a lot less than 5,000.
2: And every single textual criticism historian on the face of the planet will tell you that that 11 variations is enough for us to know that Homer wrote exactly what he intended us to believe. We have 5,000 and we are told every single day that we don't have enough evidence just something to think about.
1: All right, we had questions that come, came in all over the map, and I want to thank you, uh, Pastor Chris, because the questions were so far from left to right that we would be bouncing all over the place today. What I tried to do is select three questions that were kind of running along the same path. That first question, three times in quotes, they quoted the word truth or true, and they were posing that word like a set of intellectual facts. But what you reminded us, what Jesus said, is truth is not a set of facts, it's a person. I am truth, and you don't know truth until you know me. Along this truth vein, Pastor Troy, you get the next question. And the next question is, does, how does God help us? I need help making decisions. I need to help making sure I'm making wise decisions. How does God or does God help us make good decisions? Before you answer, let me read for everybody the exact question that came in to us online. When I pray over a decision, and this may be some of you in the room or listening right now, when I pray over a decision that I have to make, and let's just put in parentheses, and it's a really big deal, How do I know that the answer is from God and not from the deceiver? Jesus calls Satan the one who deceives. He is the father of all lies, and all of the lies come from Satan. How do I know that my answer is coming from God and not from Satan? Again, fix the world's problems in five minutes. Go. Uh,
0: Take a stab at it. God answers us in one of four ways. He answers yes, no, wait, and if. Of course, yes, we agree with because God gave us what we, what we prayed for. We like that one. We disagree with the no's. And then after you go past no to the last two, that's where we get impatient with God and we fall by the wayside, meaning we vary, meaning we, we try to implement our ways of answering the questions. When you get to wait, that's when we get impatient. An example, wait, how long did Abram waited for Isaac to be born? How many years? Who knows? 25 years. From when God promised him a son until his son was actually born. 25 years. The good thing about it, in the meantime, as Abram was waiting, God gave him assurances Mm -hmm along the way to let him know that the promised child would come. So he has some assurances along the way, but wouldn't that make you impatient to wait that long? And the, the fourth one is if. We don't like ifs because if comes with conditions. Like your kid say, hey, I, I want to eat ice cream at the church. You see, you, you can if you clean your room or you do this, that, or the other. And that's how God answers us. Look at a good example of another good example of a yes is the prayer of Jabez in 1 Chronicles 4 and 10. I don't have it up there, but yeah, that's a good one. But I want to look at 2 Chronicles 7, um, 13 and 14. Is both of them there because 14 starts in the middle of the scripture? Go back to it. If I shut the sky so there's no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people (laughs) who bear my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and I will hear from the evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their land and heal and heal their land go back one now let's break this down and look at what god is telling us the first part of 13 is talking about god is sending assurance to solomon because he's dedicating the temple and he's talking about it but when you get to in turn that's the beginning of 14 that's why we had to i had to read the first half of it and he turned the next one He's, he had them go through. So in order for that prayer to be answered, God said, he said, you gotta humble yourself. He said, pray, seek my face, and then turn from your evil ways. And then after that, he said, then will I hear from heaven and I will heed your land, and I will answer your prayers. So it's the conditions that lead into it. The last part I want to talk about is how do you know that God has answered your prayers. I'm just going to give you two reasons, two things to check, two questions to ask yourself if you're feeling an answer. One is, does the answer you are receiving goes against God's word? Is, is what you receiving, what you thinking God is saying to do, does it line up with his scripture, line up with his word for your life? Secondly, do you have a... Um, sense of peace about the decision. If you can't sleep at night on this decision, then nine times out of 10, it's not a decision that God would have for you to make. I went against that a couple of times, enough to know that I don't want to keep doing that. Because if you make making a bad decision, like purchasing something in thousands of dollars, now you got thousands of dollars in debt or a heartache that you have to suffer through in order to get back. So you do that a couple of times, you're gonna be like, Man, I I, I had an uneasy feeling. I didn't have a sense of peace about that decision. But I went against what I was feeling, what God was giving me on the inside. So if it goes against God's word, one and two, if you have a sense of peace about it, if you can answer yes to those two questions, then it's a good chance that that decision that God would have for you to, to make.
1: All right. I'm going to try to give you... Two questions that I think were being asked, but the person that asked these questions that I'm going to attempt to answer, I don't think that they come from the United States. English is not the first language, so it was a little bit confusing for me. But I think someone was asking questions about the second coming and the end of the age. What will the new earth be like, new heavens and new earth, Revelation chapter 21, And then the second part of this question, all in one paragraph that came in, was about the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? Singular. But now I'm going to read the whole question for you, and maybe you guys out there can tell me whether or not I even got these right. So here was what came in online. What guarantee is there? And I want to caution you with this word guarantee. That is a very, very dangerous word, depending on how you're using it. I'll tell you why in just a second. What guarantee is there that the new earth will not be destroyed as it is continually being destroyed over and over again? The fire, the flood. What if, it get just, what if the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 gets destroyed? I think it's asking questions about what is it going to be like. But without even pausing to take a breath, and here's what they say uh, uh, in addition to that. And in any case, what guarantee is there? That's that word again. That there may be, you yourself might be the second Lucifer after you have tri- you got tired of taking instructions when you have no choice on your own because everything is perfect and you want out of the new heaven and the new earth. Wow. Um, let me caution you about what you just heard from Pastors Chris and Troy. We are called to faith. And when you start asking for guarantees... It almost sounds like you're using this wrong. It almost sounds like you're saying, God, I believe in you, but I'm not going to do it until you show me a sign. Can I remind you of what Jesus said about people that demand a sign from God before you decide to follow him? He said, it is a wicked and perverse generation that asks for a guarantee or a sign. And I just want you to be cautious here. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, I have a big decision to make and I need to know that I'm following your will and not being tempted by the enemy. That's a great thing to pray. But if you're saying, I think I know in my heart what I'm supposed to do and I'm not gonna do it until you give me a sign, you very well may have just crossed the line and become what Jesus said, a wicked and perverse generation that demands a guarantee so what guarantee is there? Well, depending on how you use this word, nothing or everything. And it's all about how you're using this word. If God's nature, his character, and his word, which Pastor Chris has described as incredibly well-documented and well-established, if that's not guarantee enough for you, then there is nothing that will guarantee you enough. If that If you're wanting to know, how can I trust the future? Well, the God of the heavens and the earth has told you what your future looks like. Revelation 20, 21, 22. What other guarantee do you need? So what will it be like? Well, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the mind of man what heaven is going to be like. But I can tell you right now, it's far greater than anything you can imagine. But somebody sent in a question this week and I really need to answer that question when we go to the live part of this service. Second question is, what about the Antichrist? Well, let me try to answer the first question with Revelation 12, 21 verse one. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. That perfect paradise way back in the Garden of Eden that was ruined and everything was broken because of sin. It's all been fixed. It's all been restored. And there is no more temptation. There is no more sin. So the perfect paradise that you and I will live in goes on forever. But you asked a question about Antichrist, and I just want to say something. It's not designed to shock you, church, but it may be true. There may be Antichrists in this room right now. And I'm using Bible language, not Jeff's language. Antichrists, plural, with the S on the end, is very different than the Antichrist, singular. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, It is the last hour. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago. If it was the last hour, then it is definitely the last hour today. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist, singular, is coming, even now many Antichrists, say that word out loud, Antichrist, plural, have come. And if you're trying to figure out, well, who's Christ-like Christian, that's what the word means, little Christ or Christ-like, and who's Antichrist, plural, well, here is John's description. But we know that this is the last hour. They, Antichrist, went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us however they went out to us so that they might be made so it might be clear that none of them belonged to us what john is saying here in this passage is exactly what jesus said there's really only two types of people on the planet you are either with me in jesus's language or you hate me you are against me there is no more ambivalence you are either christ-like christian or you are antichrists, plural, because there's no middle ground here. And that's why every single Sunday, what we say up here on stage, what we say as a church is eternally important because the new heavens and the new earth rest on faith, genuine, radical, new-believing faith, or or new-birth faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for somebody out there, maybe what you need right now is for him to do a supernatural work in your heart. Maybe what you need is to be born again. We're not gonna answer any live questions. We're not gonna go on any further until we nail down this. Maybe somebody needs to go from against me to with me today. And for the rest of us, Now that you're starting to understand some of the deeper things of faith, maybe what you need to do is share this with somebody who doesn't understand it, who needs to hear it, who needs to be born again, who their soul needs to be changed through this supernatural work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you allow me, church, to just say a prayer over all of us before we pull up some of the questions that came in live? Let me pray over us. Father, The Bible is abundantly clear. You in your word made this clear in 1 John chapter 2. Jesus, your son, made it absolutely clear when he stood before the crowds and said, you are either with me, you love me, you have passionately surrendered to me, or you are against me, which means you hate me, and there is no middle ground. God, right now, maybe somebody needs to go from dead in sin to alive in Christ go from against him to with him for the first time. And if that's the case, would you help them right here in this room or while they're watching or listening to this broadcast to simply cry out to you a prayer of faith that says, God, forgive me. God, I'm a sinner. And I've heard it clearly from Pastor Chris today. I don't have to go walk up a mountain to a temple on top of a hill to try to offer some kind of sacrifice in hopes that you would accept me. No, you love me enough that you sent your son Jesus from the high mountain of heaven down to earth to be with me, to walk among us, to take on flesh and to be like us, to dwell among us. And not only did he do that, that alone is amazing enough. But he was willing to die in my place, which is proof that I can't be a good boy or I can't do enough good works to earn my way into heaven. I need your forgiveness. I need your miracle of new life in my heart. I need you to change me right now. God, would you hear somebody crying that prayer out silently from a sincere heart? And would you change it? But God, would you also strengthen all of your people, your children that are still struggling with a few questions. And would you help us to start to better understand our faith, not for our own selfish ends, but for your glory and for your kingdom so that we can take the little that we know and start to share it with others who don't know anything so that maybe they would hear and their lives would be changed also. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, there are a couple of questions that came in that we're going to try to answer for you. Um, But one of them came in last week, and this question was from James, and it was about the word branch, B-R-A-N-C-H. Sometimes in the Bible, that word branch is capital B. And James asked the question, after reading Zechariah chapter 6, it describes the branch. How many branches, capital B, are there in Scripture that refer to the Savior um, of all of the times that this word is used? And what we said last week is, this is one of those questions that we got to go back to the Scriptures and do some research. So the word branch in the ESV version of the Bible shows up 102 times, five times that word refers to definitively refers to King Jesus. Now the Bible is using family tree language and it's using God's family tree when it causes when it uses the capital B word branch as God's one and only branch, his son, Jesus. And just so you know, It's found in Isaiah 6, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, and in Zechariah 3. There's no question those five references refer to Jesus. There are other passages in those 102 times in the Bible that it kind of tangentially refers to Jesus. But all of the rest of the times, it's about a palm branch or the branch of a tree or Aaron's staff that budded a branch in one night as a supernatural miracle of God. Just to answer your question, five times that we're absolutely certain of in, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, and in Zechariah, we know this refers to the capital B, God's one and only branch on his tree, Jesus. Um, some questions that came in online that I've asked you guys to prepare for us. Uh, you had a question that I asked you to get ready for before we started live on YouTube. Would you read the question and then answer it? And then if anything else came in, we can go on to that one. Do you want me to read the question for yes. you? Yeah, okay, hold on. Um, here is your question. What is the biblical stance on cremation?
2: Good.
1: <laughs> nice and easy question. Yeah, no,
2: uh, because God. Um, the good news about talking about cremation, typically why this question comes up is we see in the Old Testament a discussion about the destruction of God's image. For that we are image bearers, Um, you usually see the reference of destruction there. You also see the reference to whether we're supposed to get tattoos or not. Oops. Um, Troy. (laughs) um, Come up during that discussion, but one of the important things in all seriousness in talking about this issue is we're trying to also reconcile against the, well, if we cremate a body, how does God bodily resurrect God us, it, right? right? Yeah. Um, well, this is going to sound really familiar to all of you that have been here the last three weeks, but w- why do you assume that God can't do that? Is a question that I return to you Um, Because if God is capable of creating All the heavens, earth, stars, pinpoints And everything in the universe I think he is fully capable of resurrecting ashes Into structured bone, into structured body And then a perfect glorified body Which we know is coming later on So for me Part of that is Addressing the issue of do we trust God enough To do what he says he's Mm -hmm. going to do He says he's going to do it Um, And it's also an issue Of I'll try to do this in the short version, but this is where we talk about the law and the first covenant and how does that apply as the law in the second covenant, right? So Jesus comes and fulfills the law and the first covenant, and we are then given the New Testament and the new realities of our second covenant, which is trusting and knowing in Christ alone that he's addressed all these issues, which means we have resolved a lot of the law, so we are not bound to the pieces In the same way and so the reality is God is capable of all things and we should never miss that point but we also know that God is very forgiving and great full of grace because we also need to look at the practical realities of yes we as families deal with this as a choice right at the end of life but what about people that have no control over the end of their lives and where they're at there's lots of different circumstances that can occur that basically the equivalent would occur right um and i know that god is fully capable and for me it's partially a matter of trust and faith but also the reality that the bible does not strictly deny this reality and so talking about biblically and everything it under jesus we don't see jesus sit up there and say well if you cremate then well i guess everything's off I, too I bad i can't do anything with yep, dust. Nope. too bad i
1: gotta have bones at least
2: yeah at least I, that those requirements were not placed upon us um so i think that's the short hopefully yeah. simple
1: answer i get asked this question all the time and what i tell people is if jesus takes enough time to come back all of us are going to be cremated anyway it just may be the slow process or the new process we're all going to be a pile of dust um, before he returns us and restores our physical bodies. Um, if there's more that came in online, we'll go to those in just a second. Uh, Pastor Troy, I queued you up with a question that came in ahead of time. Would you talk about the, uh, would you answer the question, what about, the, what about tattoos? No, no, no. I'm sorry. You got the question. Are there any, do you think there are living prophets today?
0: They are, but they are not in the form of, in the biblical sense, of prophets
1: camels hair and no. locust and a, b- a leather belt is that what you're saying
0: no they're not in that form they don't they're not here in that form as they were in the bible and when they were in the bible they were prophesizing of something new that god had gave them to say to the people those prophets really the bible said they end that with john the baptist and then jesus came and replaced john the baptist and so when jesus died and went to heaven those type of prophet that's talk about things new coming on earth and in the future no in that sense but they are prophets that can speak into your life and see something in your future and can speak on that but the bible also talks about i can't remember the scripture off the top of my head now that said test the spirit Um, um it's I had it earlier, and now it's just running out of my mind. It'll come to me after the benediction. (laughs) But it it says when someone prophesies to you or speaks something um, in your life, you don't, I mean, it's normal to think, well, what does the stranger know about me, and so on and so forth. Those are natural things you want to feel. But there's some truth to, there's possibly some truth to what they're saying. And what the scripture is saying is that you have the Holy Spirit too. So you look at it, what you're doing in your life, and you look at what they're saying, you don't just totally dismiss it, but you see if it lines up with what God is having you on the path to do. And that's how you can you tell if they're on point or they're not. But yes, they are prophets, but they're not gonna tell you now, if they come to you and say, hey, God is doing a new thing, and he's doing I would kind of move away from that person fairly quickly. Because <laughs> Scripture struck by lightning. speaks against that. But it does speak that they are prophets that can see something in your life and tell you about it. And then, but it should line up with what you're already on the path to doing. If it doesn't, then you can question it.
1: By the way, the three questions that we put on the screens that the three of us answered, there's a lot more resources on our, web, or on our mobile app. If you scroll down the page and see that little orange link that says uh, recommended resources or additional resources, there's a hyperlink there to lots and lots of articles and videos that will give you more information. I would just wanna add, when you use the word prophecy, I kinda of wanna know what do you mean? Because there's two types, and I, we covered this in midweek worship, y'all. There is the type of prophecy that says this is what's about to happen. Then there's the type of prophecy, and this is what you see a lot in the Bible, of this is God's view of what's currently happening. And there's no question that kind of prophecy goes on all of the time. They're just saying on the Lord's behalf his opinion of what's currently happening there is foretelling. This is going to happen. There is foretelling. This is God thoughts. God's thoughts about what is currently happening. I got a question that came in earlier that I'm going to answer, but uh, I'll cue you up. Somebody asked a question several weeks ago about tattoos. So why don't you go ahead and answer that one in just a second? Dave sent in a question. He was very honest about it. He was kind of giving a little bit of background, and then at the end of his background, he sent this question into us. I'm a Christian. I know that Jesus has changed me, but I really don't have any desire to go to heaven. Is there something wrong with me? And here's what I want to say to Dave. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe what you've just heard is bad preaching. Because oftentimes what preachers will do is talk about heaven like it's going to be a billion year church service. And maybe for you, church is insanely boring. And you're thinking, why would anybody want to go to a church service that never ends? That may be what you're thinking right now. Because let's be honest, I've been to some church services. If that's what heaven's going to be like, I'm not sure I want to go there either. But perhaps somebody hasn't described for you adequately It's not about the streets of gold, y'all. It's not about the mansions that God's prepared for you. It's not about the 12 gates and the new heaven and the new Jerusalem. It's about being in God's presence. The ultimate reward of heaven is he looks you in the eyes and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into this place that I prepared for you, this rest that I prepared for you, and there is no temple. There is no need to go to a building. There isn't even a sun in the sky burning anymore because God's glory is so bright and so close to his people that you get a chance to hang out face to face with King Jesus for eternity. If that doesn't feel like heaven to you, then maybe there is something wrong with you. If heaven just is, if you've just been told your entire life, heaven is a really boring church service that never ends, then sure, it would be natural for you to not want to go to heaven if that's what your vision of heaven is. But that's just not what the Bible describes as the new Jerusalem, the the eternal state of things. And this is a really honest question, Dave, so I just want to thank you for sending in an honest question because it deserves an honest answer. Now, Chris, there are two of us up here on the stage that have tattoos, and somebody has asked a question about tattoos. I'm one of the two. What does the Bible have to say about tattoos? Since we can see them on you, uh, what's your answer to that question?
2: Oops. No, just kidding. Uh, Actually, copy and paste a part from earlier where we were discussing about the issues of the law and the covenants and everything. But I do want to add a second layer to this because I think it's one of the most important pieces about the reality of us as Christians and we can apply a lot of other discussions here like how we speak, how we carry ourselves, and things like that, but what I'm about to say is everything we should do should be to the honor of God. To
1: glorify God, agreed.
2: So, when you're deciding on your next piece, it probably means you wanna have a discussion with yourself of is what I'm about to literally, permanently place upon my body something that brings glory to God? And I know that's going to sound weird, but at the same time, that's the discussion we as Christians are supposed to be having. Is at the bottom of the list, at the end of the day, no matter what happens, we're supposed to be bringing glory to God. So I get that that's probably really weird as you're trying to figure out whether I need to absolutely get my unit patch on my arm for some strange reason. Um, If it doesn't distract from God, then we have the same issue of that's probably okay. But this is part of those things of you can go back and have the original discussion about image of god and everything but it's ultimately going to come down to your heart motivation for why you're doing the thing are you doing the thing for your personal benefit because you're literally doing something that you know is going to upset somebody what what is your heart motivation is going to be the base of almost any decisions you make as a christian after you become a christian right So we are here to bring glory and to worship our Creator and the Father. So does what you are doing and what you are placing in public view bring glory to God is where I kind of end up at the end of the day, and I am more than happy to explain every single piece of ink on me as most people generally can tell the story. And, oh, yeah, by the way, probably some of you got a lot of that before you became Christians, and guess what? That becomes part of your story as well. Because all of those things end up on you somehow, and there's usually a story attached to it. So I can sit here and tell, you th- tell your story.
1: I would agree completely. And I would also say if you're going to get a throat tattoo to show everybody how tough you are, it's going to be really hard to glorify God that way. Um, Pastor Troy, anything come in on Facebook that you want to answer? I got one more question that just came in. I really want to answer this question. Well, I don't want to, but it just came in, so I'm going to.
0: Okay, I'll be brief with it. The question states, is the Book of Revelations literal or metaphorical or both? How do you discern between the two?
1: That is a great question right in there. Sh-
0: in short, it's a combination of symbols, allegories, and actual events. Um, you got to think the Book of Revelation was given to John in a dream. And we all know when we dream, in actuality, those dreams don't happen the exact same way we see them in our dream. So, it's not a literal book that we take, like, yes, it, it, I saw it in Revelation, God is gonna come back exactly how he came in Revelation. No, it was to, to show those symbols, show those allegories in the spirit realm and show that God conquers evil and sin in the end and that we have a home that's waiting for us in all his glory and we win. Meaning that we get the victory. That's what, in short, what the book of Revelation is trying to reveal to us.
1: I love his answer. I had the privilege of studying under one of the world's greatest experts on John, the guy who wrote John, first, second, third John in Revelation. And he made this statement about Revelation. Revelation means exactly what it means, but not exactly what it says. And part of your job is to figure out what does it mean? Because you can take what it means to the bank. Um, But it takes some work. I've never preached from the book of Revelation. I've never preached the book of Revelation because of how much work it takes. And I'm not there yet. And I've been doing this for a long, long time. One of my brothers in Christ asked on our live channel, what's the biggest mistake in ministry that you've made? I'm going to just go ahead and answer this personally, if any. And what has your, been your biggest joy in ministry? I can answer both of those pretty easily. I've been on staff at two other churches in my life. Once before becoming an army chaplain and once right before starting Two Cities Church. And I trusted a pastor who gave me some terms and conditions before I came on staff who lied to my face. That's all I'm going to say. Second, the biggest joy in ministry is easy it's hands down without a doubt I would put up with rubbing a cheese grater across my forehead 40 hours a week to see one person radically changed by King Jesus that is the miracle of all miracles and that makes all of the pain and all of the mistakes and all of the failures in ministry worth it and by the way There are more angels rejoicing in heaven over one person who comes to faith in Christ than over 99 who are just doing the right thing, um, which is even in heaven. That's the joy that gets the angels shouting in heaven. We're going to wrap the service up today by doing something a little.
0: We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes.
2: Have a great week.